let me kind of give you a, a little bit of a timeline for what we're going to do. Um, we've got about two weeks left in the Revelation series that we've been in for 12 weeks. And then uh, I decided to add on an additional week. So we're going to do three more weeks uh, just for any questions that people might have about the text and about what we've been studying together the, the, last, the last three months. And so uh, several of those ha- have actually come in. Um, if you have any questions, there's an insert in your bulletin. Uh, be sure to write those down. We're, we're getting some really interesting ones in uh, that, that I'm looking forward to answering. And so that'll be on uh, the, the last week of that. Uh, we're going to do a standalone elder sermon about eldership that we do every year. And then following that, we'll do a, a series to kind of end our summer called uh, Making a Difference 101. And uh, just talking about how we can make a difference in, in our lives and in the people around us. But um, today, uh, we're, we're going to be studying uh, Revelation 20. And <clears throat> this is where uh, Revelation really begins to, to take a turn for the positive and uh, d- begins to, some of that dark stuff, we, we've moved past it a little bit, and this is where we start to see some, some victory, and uh, kind of set up where we're going to be today. One of uh, the shows that Cheryl and I uh, used to love to watch is a show called Bones. Has anyone ever seen the show Bones? All right. Yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of a murder mystery show, which I'm immediately always drawn to, and, and it follows this team that works for the Jeffersonian Institute, and they examine Uh, the bones of people that have been murdered, sometimes recently, but often a long time ago, to try to solve this this mystery. And a couple of uh, episodes in, my wife and I really began to notice kind of a a theme for this show, that what would happen is at the beginning of the episode, you would be introduced to a character that you were absolutely sure was was the murderer or or the criminal. It would turn out they weren't, and, and then the actual murderer ended up being someone that you were introduced to at the beginning of the episode. And so we began to just kind of play a game called Who Can Name the Murderer First, right? And uh, you'd see this character come on, and Cheryl, I'd be like, that's them. Like, no, no, that's, it's, it's them. And, and this kind of turned into to a game for us of, of who could find the killer first. And I have to tell you why it was funny and fun at first. It eventually took some of the suspense out of the show. And uh, we have long ago stopped watching the show Bones uh, because it just ceased to be fun. Now, the truth is, sometimes you want suspense and sometimes you don't. Right? Sometimes in life, you just want to know how things are going to end. Sometimes knowing how things are going to end would be helpful. Like if your company has announced layoffs, you don't want suspense in that moment, right? You want to know how things are going to end. When you face trouble in your marriage, you don't want suspense in that moment. You want to know how things are going to end. When you're facing uh, the poor decisions of a wayward child, Right? You don't want suspense in that moment. You want to know how things are going to end. When you're, when you're facing disease or a family member is facing disease, you don't want suspense in that moment. You want to know how things are going to end. I, I tell you, I think this is most helpful when we talk about the book of Revelation. It's this gift God has given to us of knowing how things are going to end. Because there have been moments of suspense in the book. There have been moments of, uh, of difficulty in the book. But we have been given this wonderful gift to be able to know how things are, are going to end. So in, the, in this book, we've seen the work of the unholy trinity that we've talked about. The dragon, otherwise known as Satan, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. How they've set up this city called Babylon in the book of Revelation. And it becomes kind of this epicenter for, for evil. That in this city, it, it becomes the headquarters of it, where they're blaspheming God's name, they're slandering God's name, they're persecuting the people of God. People of God are thrown into prison, killed, mistreated, and thankfully, God in his grace 
has given the people of God this book called Revelation to show us how it's all going to end. So when it feels like Satan uh, and, and everything he brings into the world, when it feels like he is winning, we have this gift of a book to know that he's not going to win at all. So, so when we uh, see that the city is destroyed, that this evil city, when we see uh, that the, the, the beast is thrown into the fire, we, we know that we are only left with the dragon. We are only left with Satan. And now I want to show you uh, the, the last couple scenes of chapter 20. And, and this chapter is broken into three separate scenes. And I just want <clears throat> to show you the text and then talk through some things and, and encourage one another about how things are going to end. So in Revelation 20, the scene starts with an angel coming down out of heaven, uh, having a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. All right, he seizes the dragon, Satan. He binds him in prison for a thousand years. And then we see in the text that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, this is one of the great controversies of the book of Revelation. It really kind of astounded me as I started to study Revelation that when you talk about truly controversial parts of Revelation, there's really only a couple chapters and a couple verses in those chapters that would be considered controversial. And this is one of them. That is Jesus actually going to reign on the earth after he returns for a thousand years? Or is that figurative? Like they're saying, like a metaphor that Jesus is in charge in all of his glory. And so the writer paints this imagery of a king reigning for a thousand years. Is it literal or is it figurative? And I have to say that as I've studied this text more and more, I've kind of done a 180 on this idea. I used to think it was figurative, but as I've read it and as I've studied it, I believe that after his return, Jesus is going to reign on earth for a thousand years. And uh, I want to show you exactly how the text says this in verses four through six. (coughs) Excuse me. I saw thrones on which were seated those uh, who had been uh, given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Here's why I did the 180. It appears to me that the the thousand year reign of Christ is not just a symbol. Instead, it is a reward. And notice the requirements for those who receive the reward. Uh, It says that those who were beheaded or killed because of their testimony of Jesus, people that had not worshipped the beast, people that had not received his mark on their foreheads, that, that those who qualify for this reward are the persecuted. These are people that have been mistreated. They, they, they have been uh, beheaded. They, they have been imprisoned. They have gone through difficulty simply because they believe this book and simply because they believe in the testimony of Jesus. Hebrews 11 verses 36 through 38 describes these people when it says, some of them faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. This is a reward for those people. 
that have been so mistreated and so despised and so rejected by this world, Jesus is going to resurrect them first and they are going to be able to reign and rule on the, in, in the world for a thousand years. Now, just so you're, you're not tempted to think <clears throat> that this whole persecution thing is just in Bible times, let me throw out a couple statistics for you. Did you know that more Christians were killed in the 20th century, all right? More Christians were killed in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Right? This is not just a Bible thing. Think about that for a moment. More people were killed in the 1900s, for Christians killed for their faith, than in every other previous century combined. About 170,000 Christians are killed for their faith each year. Currently, about 200 million Christians are being persecuted for their faith. And so before the end of all things, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to reward them for their faith. This dragon and the beast who had overseen their demise, who had persecuted their families, who had judged them illegally and immorally, who they had lived in constant fear and trembling of as they walked through this earth, they now have an opportunity to be judges. They're not the ultimate judge. The ultimate judge we're going to see is Jesus. But, but they're, they're going to be the judges of this earth as a reward. And let me just tell you, this is who you want as judges in this world. They are the faithful they are, they are fearful of God. They, they walk in obedience to him. The, these people that are being rewarded, they are the godly. This is who you want as judges. So we're told that they're going to be judging. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but they are judges on the earth. They are priests. They are there loving and caring for the people. And this is who you want loving and caring for the people. They have been through the fire. They have been through difficulty. And now they are resurrected. They're going to make great priests. Right? They're going to love and care for the people. But, but the real reward is this. Right? The judges thing, I wonder how that's going to work out. The priest thing, I wonder how that's going to work out. But the real reward is they are given an opportunity to live on this earth while Satan is imprisoned. Remember, before their, their resurrection, Satan is thrown into prison. They are resurrected and they are able to live on earth with, with Satan being in prison. And picture that just for a moment of how peaceful that would be how much joy there would be, how much hope there would be. This is their reward. Now, we know that there's going to be a lot of different rewards given to a lot of different people for a lot of different acts of faithfulness, right? So we, we know that this is not the only reward given. There's a lot of different rewards, but this is certainly unique, is it not? Right? Resurrecting and, and ruling the earth with Jesus. And as you, read this, as you read the book of Revelation, you see that these people of faith that are dying and, and persecuted, you might be tempted to wonder, where is God in this moment? And in Revelation 20, as you read the first 19 chapters, where is God while these people are being defeated? Where is God while they're being destroyed? Where is God? And in Revelation 20, we realize God saw the whole thing and he is now rewarding them for their faith. Now you can file this away. For the next time you're going through difficulty and the next time you're going through trial and the next time you're going through, through hardship, when you wonder where is God, remember this text and remember God sees. God sees and God rewards in his own timing. Now I know some might be tempted to say, Steve, interesting stuff, but why are you belaboring this point? Because probably, I might be wrong on this, but probably there isn't a person in this room that's going to die for their faith this year. That's probably true. 
You might be tempted to think this doesn't apply to, to me. But here's what I want you to see in this text. Do you see in this text how much God cares for the persecuted? Do you see in this text how much he cares for the downtrodden? Do you see in this text how much he cares for those who have been faithful to him and thrown into prison, beaten, sawed in two, one part of the scripture says beheaded, how much he cares for these people that have given the ultimate sacrifice for their faith? And here's why I say all that. If God cares about it, you should care about it too. And if God cares about it, I should care about it too. If God cares about these people this much, you and I should care about them too. And I know it doesn't seem like it affects us when somebody a thousand or several thousand miles away is thrown in jail for their faith. But the Bible says under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's your brother being thrown into prison. That's your sister being thrown into prison. God cares about these people. And so here's one of the big Bible challenges for us today is we should care too. Say, what do you mean? How am I supposed to care? Pray for the persecuted. Add them to your prayer list. Pray for the persecuted. Pray for those that, that are being thrown into prison. Pray for those that are being mistreated. You can financially support organizations like Voice of the Martyrs. Right? Voice of the Martyrs gives relief to families that, are, that have someone in their family that was killed for their faith. Financial and, and, and monetary help for them. Live differently because we see in the back of the book what God really cares about. So we're going to have the thousand-year reign of Christ and reign of the saints. Now we're going to see another image. Look at what the text says in verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. God and uh, Magog. Now, just as a side note, I don't know if as you're reading this, if you were struck the way I was struck as I'm reading this, this doesn't feel like imagery to me, does it to you? It feels like this is laying out how things are actually going to go. So the thousand years is over, Satan is released, he goes to Gog and Magog and gathers his soldiers for battle. Uh, In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loved, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Now I have to tell you, this text amuses me a great deal. And and here's why. Satan's been in, in prison for a thousand years, He gets out of prison. He goes to the four corners of the earth. He says, I'm going to gather an army. So he gathers an army. That's a pretty big army, honestly, numbering the sand on the seashore. He gathers this army. He goes to the city of God. He surrounds the city of God. He says, I've got them right where I want them. I'm going to execute my will. I'm going to go to battle against God's people. And fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Right? Here's what you need to know. It's over when God says it's over. Right? It's over when God says it's over. And I love this because all power, authority, and strength are his forever and ever and ever. So there is a day coming when Satan will be destroyed, when he will be thrown into a lake of fire to be tormented day after day after day. And you think about everything that he's brought into this world, death and destruction and disease. Someday it's going to be over because God says it's over. 
I think about, you know, I can't help but think about what's going on with my, my mother-in-law and ev- everything that, that goes on in our church family as well, that this disease and death and cancer, this was not part of God's original plan. This, is, this stuff came into the world when Satan deceived Adam and Eve and death entered into the world for the very first time. Death was not part of God's plan. Death is part of Satan's plan, but praise be to God, one day Satan and everything that he brings into this world will be thrown into the lake of fire. So let me get even more specific. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is your accuser. That, that the image is like uh, one of an illegal opponent in court. That he accuses us to us. Right? How could God ever love you? How could God ever care about you? How could God take you to heaven when you die? According to this text, someday the accuser is going to be cast out. 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan is our adversary, that he is the opponent of the church. He is the opponent of our worship. He is the opponent of our lives. And someday the opponent is going to be cast out. In Revelation 13.1, he is called the blasphemer. He vilifies and slanders the name of God and his character. Someday the blasphemer is going to be cast out. In Revelation 12, 9, he's called the deceiver. He tricks and he tempts people into sin. Someday your tempter is going to be cast out. In Acts 10, 38, he is called the oppressor. This is mainly talking about physical oppression, making people sick. And at the end of the day, your oppressor is going to be cast out. He is called the prince of this world, a roaring lion, the ruler of darkness, a man of sin, liar of liars, the great serpent, and someday his end is going to come and he is going to be cast out. Praise be to God. So how would you live differently knowing that at the end of the story, Satan is destroyed? You know the number one word the revelation, revelation describes how you and I should live because this is true? The number one thing the Bible says is you should overcome. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, we shall overcome. Because someday he will be destroyed. Someday he will be cast down. Someday he will be thrown into a lake of fire. And you know what that means about Satan? It means that Satan is not God and he can be overcome. Satan is not God. All right? I want you to say that with me real quick. I know it sounds kind of patronizing, but say it with me. Satan is not God. Some of us need to hear that word today. He is not God. He is not all-powerful. He he is not all-knowing. He is not omnipresent, meaning he is not everywhere. He can be overcome. He is not God. So when the Bible calls him your adversary, when he calls him your accuser, when he calls him your deceiver, your oppressor, the, the ruler of darkness, the roaring lion, the Bible does not say this to intimidate you. The Bible says this to, to make you aware that you have an accuser, but to also encourage you that you can overcome your accuser. C.S. Lewis once said that there are two big mistakes that people uh, make when it comes to Satan. One is they think about him too much. The other is they think about him too little. And the word that I'm preaching right now is for the too much crowd. Because there is a part of Christianity that wants to make Satan too much. They give him too much credit. They forget that he is not God. He can be overcome. Someday he will be destroyed. God's never going to be destroyed. God cannot be destroyed. It's impossible. Satan can be destroyed because he's not God. He can be overcome because we have the spirit of Christ living in us and and through us, and Jesus overcame him, so you can overcome him too. So when temptation strikes, we overcome. When hardship strikes, we overcome. When disease strikes, we overcome. 
When we fail, we get back up and we overcome again. We become overcomers. Become overcomers, right? Because of he who lives inside of us. All right, scene three, the dead are judged, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead and were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I want to take a minute this morning, and I want to preach the gospel to you. Before we ever get into this passage, I want to preach the gospel for you because it would be easy to read this text and to think that you are going to be judged according to what you have done, according to how you have lived. And I've talked to a lot of people, some even in recent days, that have this fear, that they are going to be judged according to what they have done. And the fear that comes with it is, have I done enough? Have I served enough? Have I loved enough? Have I... Have I, have I uh, been good enough for God to accept me. And you can see how this would create in a person a great deal of anxiety and fear. Have I done enough? I mean, I I would struggle with that, and so would you. Have I done enough? Have I loved enough? Have I served enough? And and how do you begin to gauge that? I mean, I'm better than my one neighbor. I'm not as good as another neighbor. And it just causes us to be filled with fear and anxiety and trepidation. And let me declare to you loud and clear before we study this passage that the gospel says... Uh, The gospel declares that you are not good enough, you have not served enough, you have not loved enough, but praise be to God for his indescribable gift, Jesus has and he stands in your place. That is the gospel. The gospel is that you cannot be good enough. The gospel is that you cannot serve enough. The gospel is you cannot be perfect enough. The gospel is that Jesus was And when you express faith in him, when you put faith in him, when he becomes your Lord and your Savior, he is good enough. He did serve enough. He was perfect enough. He stands in your place, and through him, we are saved and accepted. So now let's look at the text, all right? Verse 11, the first thing we see is a great white throne, all right? And, and I love the image of the great white throne because there is one who sits on this throne who is holy and perfect and righteous and he alone is able to judge. God himself alone should judge. He's the one that's on the great white throne. You are not on the great white throne. Praise God, no offense, but praise God. I'm not on the great white throne. Praise God for that. The one who is holy, the one who is perfect, the one who is righteous, he's on the great white throne. Verse 12 introduces this other thing called the book of life. Uh, that the book of life contains the name, names of the people who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. They are in the book of life because Jesus is their life. And so you've got this great white throne, you've got the book of life, and it has the names of the people who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior and the corresponding evidence for such. Now, I want to just take a little aside here because this is the spot when I'm typically talking to someone where they say, well, what about the guy living in India 
who's never heard the name of Jesus or some third world country who's never heard the name of Jesus, how are they going to be judged? And I, I say the same thing every time I'm asked this is the Bible seems to indicate that we are going to be judged by what we have been taught and, and what we've had access to, right? So you don't have to worry about the guy in India in that regard. But here's the second thing I always say. I'm not talking to the guy in India right now. I'm talking to you. And the question is, you have heard about Jesus, right? You have no, you do know his name. You do know what he's done for you. So I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to you. And you do know who Jesus is. And the book of life is for people who have crossed the line of faith when it comes to Jesus. They've trusted him as their Lord. He became their savior. Their names are written in the book of life again because he is their life. And look at what verse 15 says. And this is how important the book of life is. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is everything. The book of life determines the eternities of men. That being said, everything I've just said, that being said, you cannot deny in this passage that there are elements of the idea that a person's works are going to be examined at the final judgment. This passage very clearly teaches that our works and our lives are going to be judged. So here's the question. Is that a contradiction of the grace I just preached to you? That we are saved through the work of Jesus Christ. We We are saved by his grace through faith in him. Is this text a contradiction of that idea? Because this text seems to indicate that we are going to be judged not by the work of Jesus, but by our work. And it's not the only place this appears in the Bible. Jeremiah 17, 10, God says, The Lord searches the heart and examines the mind and will reward man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Romans 2, 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. 1 Peter 1.7, God judges each man's work impartially. Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So here's the question. Is Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, and Jesus, not Mary, um, Are they rejecting the gospel of grace that we celebrate at this church? That we are saved by grace through faith. That Jesus' work on the cross is enough. Is that being rejected? Is there an image being portrayed here that you are going to stand before the great white throne, the book is going to be opened, and you are going to be judged by how you lived? Let me emphatically answer that question before we get into it a little bit deeper. No. This is not contradicting the gospel of grace. If you are going to be saved, your salvation is going to come through Jesus Christ. If you are going to be saved, your salvation is going to come through grace. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to receive it. It is through grace and through grace alone. But here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that your life and my life, how we live, provides the evidence for what we actually believed. This is why the Bible sometimes talks about works. It is because our works, how we live, provides the evidence for what we believe. Right? So we're saved through faith, but our works will, will, will demonstrate what we actually have faith in. Let me give you a silly example of it. Right, a silly example, and then we'll get to a more serious example, is I could stand up here this morning and declare to you that I love fireworks. 
right? I could stand up here and tell you I wouldn't possibly ever miss a fireworks show, that fireworks are, are the highlight of my year. We just celebrated July 4th. But if you examine my life, you would discover that this past July 4th, when it came time to go look at fireworks, I was tired and decided to go to bed early. If you further examine my life, you would determine that it has actually only been a handful of times, maybe four or five times, my entire adult life that I have gone to see a fireworks display, right? So I would leave you with that. And and if you examine my life, you would begin to say, you know what? I don't think that guy likes fireworks as much as he says he likes fireworks, He never goes to a fireworks show. He's only been four or five times his entire adult life. He declares with his lips he loves fireworks, but I don't think he loves fireworks as much as he loves fireworks. They're free. You can just go and watch them. What is the guy's problem? I don't think he loves fireworks that much, right? This is the only way. Listen to me. It's very important to me that you, you get this point. This is the only way that our works will play into our final judgment at all. At all. Our life provides the evidence for what we believe. Our life will provide the evidence of how we really feel about Jesus. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is your grace. Jesus is your substitute. You are saved by him and through him alone. And and the only real question on the day of judgment will be, is he your Lord? Has he become your savior? And your life will provide the evidence for whether or not that is true. So let me press into this just a little bit more here. Does your life provide evidence for what you declare about Jesus? Now, I know that's a heavy question for a 10.50 on a Sunday morning, but let me get even a little more detailed here because I am not saying we don't mess up. Of course we mess up. I'm not saying we don't make mistakes. Of course we make mistakes. I'm not saying we don't sin. Of course we sin. We are saved by grace because we desperately need grace. We fall short. But could a person look at your life and determine you are a follower of Jesus? that you love him, that you worship him, that you follow him, that he is your Lord. Now, I am not casting a vision for this, that you are doing this perfectly. I would be the biggest hypocrite in the world if I cast that vision because I am not doing it perfectly. Nobody does it perfectly but Jesus Christ himself. But does your life, could a person examine your life and see evidence, and see some evidence that you love, care, and follow Jesus? Some of you would say, I've been following after Jesus for 50 years. And some of you would say, not arrogantly, but just truthfully, there is evidence left and right for my love for Jesus. The way I treat my spouse, the way I spend my money, the way I, I, the, where I go, my life has been forever changed because of who Jesus is. There is evidence for that left and right. And I, and I, I would applaud that. I would say that that's great. Some of you would say, well, here's the deal, Steve. I've not been following that long, but here's the deal with me. I think a small case could be made for the people that know me that I'm a Christian. There's some evidence. There's not as much as you're describing with the other person, but there is some evidence that I am now a follower of Jesus. Can I encourage you with something? God is a gracious God. God is a gracious God. And the smallest amount of faith, the smallest amount of faith results in a mountain of grace flowing your way. 
And my admonition to you would be, would you love Jesus more and more this year so that a year from now you can look back and see even more evidence? But you need not worry. With a God of grace, you need not worry about your salvation. If you love Jesus and you're following after him and he's changing you and making you new, but you're not where you want to be, welcome to the club. None of us are where we want to be. So if you can look at your life and you can see some evidence of the Holy Spirit and you can see some evidence of a person that follows Jesus Christ, that is a good thing. Always strive to love him more. Always strive to leave sin behind. Always, always strive for that sort of stuff. But, but you, you need not worry about God being a gracious God. God is a loving and gracious God. The, the group that I'm concerned about is this. It is the group that would say, you know what? There is no evidence of faith in my life. There's just no evidence of faith in my life, some of you would say. And when I talk about the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, you say, I am just not seeing any fruit of the Spirit. I am not seeing any evidence that I am a follower of Jesus. There is zippo, zero, none. That's not a good thing. And here's what your knee-jerk reaction is going to be. Your knee-jerk reaction is going to be, well, I've got to produce some evidence. I better go out and like love my neighbor or I better go out and, and do something to produce some evidence for the Lamb's Book of Life. Can I encourage you with something that is not your first step? See, to know Christ is to love Christ. To love Christ is to obey Christ. To obey Christ is to have a changed life. Your first step is not to live a changed life to provide evidence of your salvation. Your first step is to know Christ because to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. To obey him is to walk in a changed life. So you're thinking about step four, and I'm telling you, you need to focus on step one. If you are seeing zero evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, zero evidence of Christ's work in your life, and by zero, I truly mean none. I'm not sure we'd have a ton of people in church, but I don't want to say that categorically. But if you're not seeing the evidence, your, your first step is not to produce the evidence on your own power. That's called legalism. Your first step is to know Jesus Christ more and more, to draw closer to him, because to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him, and to obey him is to walk in new life. And so while this text can be scary, again, I want to talk about that this text is not given to us for prediction exactly how all this is going to unfold. It's given to us for introspection, and so I hope there's some introspection this morning. There had, certainly was in my life this past week about, man, you know, am I in Christ? I, I love Jesus Christ. So yeah, I'm, I'm in Christ. And does my life back that up and begin to think about some of those works things, about how Christ has changed the way that I love my wife and, and all that. That stuff doesn't save me. Jesus Christ saves me. But I could point to you some fundamental ways in which he's changed my life. There is evidence There's evidence to back up my claim about about how I feel about Jesus. And I hope there is with you as well. Because that's the only reason the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life is a list of people that have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. And then next to their name is the corresponding evidences. And so we, we want there to be evidence. The Bible talks a lot about there being evidence that you do love Jesus, that you are following after him. You know, and you may not have as much as you'd like. Hopefully next year there's even more as you love him more. To, to, to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. To obey him is to walk in new life. So, so 
knowing him is the first step. Loving him is the second step. Obeying him, walking in a new life. You, you, you get the point. I'm belaboring it. I need to stop talking. But anyway, um, and so that introspection key is really, really key. My wife and I, I was uh, sharing with her, her the message because on this one, I really, I needed a, a second set of ears on this because the last thing I would ever want to proclaim to you, and I, I hope you didn't receive this at all, is that somehow we're going to be saved by our own works, right? Because that, that is categorically unbiblical. So I was just sharing with her, this is how I'm thinking about phrasing this and, and all of that. And she said, can I ask you a question as, as we kind of finish up? I said, sure, hon. What's your question? She said, why does God need a book? Oh, that's a really good question. So doesn't, doesn't he know who really loves him? Doesn't, he knows the evidence, right? He sees this every day. He knows the evidence of who's walking in true faith. Why does God need a book? And uh, I, I looked at her for not the first time. I've said this many times in our marriage, but I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know why God needs, needs a book. I mean, God doesn't need a book. But, and then we just sat there in like awkward silence for a couple minutes. Going, why does God need a book? You know, why, why does he have a book? And, and she kind of out of the quietness, she said, maybe it's a divine, like a divine baby book. And I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we got a baby book of, of Sam's first steps and first words and, when, you know, all of, all of that stuff. And someday we're going to show that to him. And someday he's going to look at that baby book and he's going to say about his parents, they saw, they noticed, they cared enough to see, they, they cared enough to notice. And she said, maybe the reason God has a book is that this is meant to be encouraging to those of us in Christ Jesus, that when it comes to how you live, God sees, God sees. And he knows how much you love him. He knows how much you care. He, 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 and he loves you too. Maybe this is not meant for the Christian. Maybe this is not meant to be scary at all. You always hear about, you know, I don't know if you saw the video when you were a teenager of, you know, the, the video that's meant to like scare teenagers where, where they went out and got in a car accident and ended up in heaven. And the big Lamb's Book of Life, you know, boom. Yeah. That, that sort of thing. That, that's just meant to be kind of heavy-handed and scary. Maybe this isn't meant to be scary at all. Maybe if you're a Christian, this is meant to be encouraging. God sees. God sees. He knows. He knows how much you love him. He knows how much you care about him. And he's recording it in, in the Lamb's Book of Life. And someday, I think we're going to be up there, and he's going to have that Book of Life, and we're going to climb up onto his lap as Christians, and we're going to be looking, and we're like, I forgot about that. I forgot I did that. I forgot I said that. I forgot that I loved in that way. And God's like, oh, I saw it. And I was smiling from ear to ear. I loved it so much when you encouraged that person that way. I loved it so much. You know, I just had to write it down. Let this be an encouragement to you if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you should become one. I overly simplistic, I know, but I was like, how can I phrase this in a really provocative way? And I was like, there is no provo- If you're not a Christian, read Revelation 20 and become one, right? Make sure your, 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 your name is written in that Lamb's Book of Life. And I know when it comes to evidence, we're all in different areas. Some of us have been following after Jesus for, for just a year or two, and we're like, ah, there's some evidence. Praise be to God, there's some evidence, and some of you have been following after Jesus for 50 years, and, and hopefully you can say, there's a lot of evidence. 
I've been living with Jesus for a long, long time. Praise be to God, there's a lot of evidence. The group I am concerned about is where there is no evidence. And you say, I don't think I'm saved. You become saved. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, but believe in his son, be baptized in his name, and, and know him, love him, obey him, and follow him. It's really not that complicated, but have Jesus be your Lord. When Jesus is your Lord, he becomes your savior. So you really should become a Christian if you're not one. It is, a, it is a life-changing, wonderful thing. And I'll tell you, when it becomes the most life-changing and wonderful is I was driving around. We were going to get some pizza with my father-in-law. And uh, we were driving around, and he said, how's Cheryl doing? I said, she's doing okay. So this is, I mean, in terms of bad times of your life, this is really bad. I, I mean, she, she's having a really, really hard time with it. And then we just kind of paused when I said, how are you doing? And he said these words, I don't know how I would go through this if I wasn't a Christian. And it's true, isn't it? Those are the times in your life when you really realize what a wonderful blessing this, this person called Jesus is. That he comes into the worst moments of your life and he loves you and encourages you. I think it's, it's easier for us to focus on that because we forget about all the ways that he changes the rest of the week. That the time that you love your wife, you know how to love because of Jesus. The, the time that you were honest at work, the, the, you're able to be honest because of Jesus. The time that you served your neighbor, you're able to serve because of Jesus. It's just harder to focus on that stuff and to see that as evidence. Your Heavenly Father is jotting all that stuff down. It, it is evidence, but it's harder for us to focus on that. But when it all falls apart, when it all falls apart, and we all have those moments where we get the phone call, we hear the news, it's devastating, worst moment of your life, those are the moments I think that we remember when Jesus holds us up and he props us up and he shows us how much he loves us. Will you stand with me?